everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy News is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is not Dan Lyons. It is Andy Prigler. How's it going? I am doing fantastic. I am filling in for Dan as your resident Brooklyn guy who is late because he was getting tacos at a hipster spot. Very nice. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I do feel like Dan is usually mid or post dinner or pre dinner <laughs> <laughs> whenever we start. So, so, so this fits exactly what we normally do around here. I, I, the problem with Brooklyn is that in these day and age, um, as we exist in a COVID world, everybody kind of understands that you can kind of do your own timetable. The draw, the plus of that is that you can pretty much show up to anywhere and not be turned down for service. The negative of that is that you can show up anywhere and wait an hour for service. (laughs) Yeah. I, uh, not that I'm out and about much, but I, I, I would agree. There's definitely a little bit of that everywhere. Um, but glad you're able to make it. I'm happy to be here because we're going to talk football. And then more importantly, we're going to talk Marvel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, realistically, um, and then the, the full disclosure, there will be spoilers in the second half of this episode. Um, first half, the spoiler is that you'll be talking about a, a terrible Syracuse football team, or at least one that, <laughs> that, that has not necessarily acquitted themselves super well so far this year. Um, I know that that sounds like revisionist history on game one, but I think knowing what we know about game two, I think game one takes on a little bit different um, lens now. And we don't necessarily have to dive into that um, as far, but Andy, without like rehashing what you discussed, um, you know, in the live cast on Sunday uh, with, with the guys, what exactly, like, like what would be your, what would be your two to four sentence recap of, of, of what occurred on Saturday? <sighs> The problem is that a lot of what I've come to internalize comes from Steve's rewatches. Um, I rewatched the game once. Steve has rewatched the game twice-ish. Um, the coaching is just not where it needs to be. Um, not necessarily the coaching is bad. I won't make that objective qualifier. What I will say is that the coaching that we are seeing so far is not what you need of a Syracuse program. And John, you kind of understand this. And for those that don't necessarily get where I'm coming from, Syracuse will never be Clemson, will never even be a Miami, will never be a mid-tier Big Ten team. What we need to be is a team that is not afraid to take risks and not afraid to experiment and change things when things aren't going well. And Dino has yet to show that as a Syracuse coach, and it's getting to the point of frustration rather than endearment. Yeah, I think that's completely accurate, and it's a very succinct way to put it, too. I think realistically, like, you know, Babers came in with this aggressive game plan and aggressive strategy and offensive fireworks and going for an unfourth down and all these things. And and, and slowly but surely, you've seen all of that kind of stripped away. Um, the speed's been stripped away. Going for an on fourth down is completely gone at this point. Like there's, I do feel like increasingly Dino is coaching not to lose and that doesn't work, especially once you're losing and, and, yeah. and it's become, I mean, I, I kind of said this in our, in our, you know, blog Slack page, like there's entire games where it has felt like Dino's punted 
Um, and, and, and that's not to say he's losing on purpose. I don't think he is by any means. And I don't want to make that accusation, but I, I do think that there does seem to be this weird pattern of once SU's down, there haven't been a whole lot of comebacks in the last five plus years um, under Dino. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of puzzling fourth quarters. There's been a lot of, I mean, realistically, we were very much in that game and should have been ahead in that game on Saturday. Uh, but, you know, once, once things sort of hit the fan, it did feel like we couldn't recover um, in part because of just decision-making. I mean, it, it, it's unforgivable that um, a team with Sean Tucker at running back and, and, and capable run blocking, even if questionable pass blocking um, did not hand the ball off once after Sean Tucker's touchdown run. Yeah. I'm having a really hard time rationalizing the play calling because the game was never out of hand. It was never an NFL game where, okay, if we punt the ball away, we're going to give up three to seven points. That was never this game. And Dino consistently coached the game as if it was um, a game where, hey, I, I, I know we can't score. It's actually the more frustrating part for me is not just the, like, the score effects part of the game. But yes, to to your point, we have Sean Tucker. We're not giving the ball to him. They coach. They coach very scared. They coach from behind. And John, I, I, I as somebody who, and not this is not a value judgment on you, but as somebody who has watched more Syracuse football than me, I don't necessarily feel like we've ever had this kind of coach who has a system, who has a way of coaching, but coaches from behind and coaches scared. Like this was never even a Gerg thing. Gerg might have coached aggressively. It was just the team was terrible. This is a team that's not like even Doug Marone for being an NFL coach and being conservative, never coached from behind in this way. You might've had some dumb jet sweeps on the goal line, <laughs> but that was just, but that was just dumb play calling. That was never scared play calling. It was just dumb right. play calling. Yeah. I, I, I do. I do think that, that the big issue here is that the play calling is, is yes. Scared would be a good way to put it. Um, it's, it's, to be honest, it's gutless in some, in some regards. It's, it, it's, it, it's ignorant of the strengths of this team, the weaknesses of this team. I, I do think that we've gotten to a point now where like we need to stop testing things mid game to see if they work. Like you can't just punt on a game. And, 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 and I use that term, not just as a metaphor, but as a literal uh, statement about what happened, uh, you know, it, late in the game um, on Saturday. When, when, when we switched punters uh, for, for, for reasons basically unknown. I mean, I know that it's been addressed to some extent that it was a different punting style um, and, and all that, but realistically, like, you don't throw um, somebody in there without any in-game punting experience uh, with, with, with the game that close. And I just think that, like, you know, and I said this in the, the article I posted on Sunday morning, like, I do feel like Dino and Sterling Gilbert are using every game as like a lab, so to speak, to test stuff out. And like, that's, this is year six. This, this was a winnable game. I, I, I don't understand why the lab includes a game that was locked zero, zero halfway through the third quarter, but doesn't include, uh, you know, like the fourth quarter of a, of a game that was well in hand against Ohio. Right. And like, this is a game that felt like they were coaching against Ohio versus Rutgers. The first game felt like more of a Rutgers game where they were running to the, t- to the team's strengths. They were overemphasizing things to the point of you have to stop us before we stop it. 
And that was the entire preview that I had this week leading up to the Rutgers game was, you know, Shiano's going to stuff the box. So you run until he proves that that stuffing the box actually does something. Then you throw the ball. And Syracuse basically punt again to borrow your analogy. They punted on that. And they said, well, we know you're going to stop the run. So we're going to do everything else. When in reality, I think based off of Steve's breakdown of the offensive line, based off the work that you, you know, everybody else has kind of done on the site this week, we probably could have been a lot more effective running the ball this week than we actually were. And honestly, like what I said going into the game was that, you know, Rutgers is going to want to force Syracuse to throw the ball. And if they can do that effectively, then they'll win. The problem is SU didn't wait for, as you said, Rutgers to force them to throw the ball. They just decided to start throwing. Um, And I'm, I'm puzzled. I'm confused. I don't necessarily think we need to, dive into it anymore if only because I know we've kind of covered it in many ways on the site already and on the live cast and then now here for a few I but do also want to oh, go for it Dan no no I was going to say like the other part of why we can't cover it is because it feels like it's a galaxy brand for those that don't know the meme it's the <laughs> idea of here's the smart decision here's the like thinking two steps ahead here's the thinking three steps ahead here's the thinking so many steps ahead that you're actually not thinking ahead. You're actually thinking behind. And I feel like that's where Syracuse is at where we're just galaxy braining every game plan. And I don't know what changes that mentality. I don't know what fixes this mentality inside the coach's room. What I do know is that any logical person will look at what happened against Rutgers. will look at what happened against Ohio and go, we should probably do more of Ohio. And I'm hoping that because we're playing Albany, because it should be a winnable FCS game, we revert to more of the Ohio game plan. We see that it works and go, well, you know, two times it works, one time it doesn't. Let's do the thing that works two times instead of one time, instead of no times. Yeah, I, I think that's completely reasonable. I'm also curious, I know, because you mentioned the Albany game, like, I'm very curious to see, A, if Dino is coaching in this game. Um, for those who didn't see, I'm sure because people will be listening on Thursday morning, you'll probably have seen this by then, was that uh, Dino reported that he had come in contact, believed contact with someone who had tested positive for COVID. Um, he'll still need to get tested. We don't know his vaccination status, I don't think. Um, but all that just kind of gets thrown out the window anyway if he tests positive. Uh, well, it, if, what if, I understand. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the Syracuse. Honestly, we kind of got a default to, to Kevin who kind of, who's working at SU and knows the SU employee protocol, which obviously might not be what the coaching staff is doing um, in all honesty. But when it comes down to it, if we're going based off of the NFL protocols, which seems to be what college is basing it off of, if you have to wait and see, it means you're vaccinated and you just need to test negative two days in a row. Um, if you're not vaccinated, they make you wait 10 days before you can even start that testing protocol. So the fact that Dino is saying he's not going to wait those 10 days, that there's no named associate coach, not to say that Dino wouldn't play this game, but it's Albany. Like it's not a team that you should be playing these games against. Yeah. Uh, I'm also just curious too. Um, you know, if God forbid he tested positive, who else on the team and, 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 and the staff has he potentially come in contact with? And again, this is not knocking him. This is the world we live in right now. Uh, but I, I think that's another thing to just kind of keep an eye on. Yeah. I mean, 
it, it's it's so it's really difficult to say college is not the NFL. I don't want to turn this into a COVID-19 diatribe, but like at the end of the day, if you're at Syracuse as a student, you're supposed to be vaccinated. That's the rule as media who is not allowed into the Syracuse locker room, who's not allowed deep access into this program. We just kind of have to operate with what's out there. What's out there is that if you're at Syracuse, you're vaccinated. So that's what we're operating under. We're assuming that Babers is following that employee protocol. We're assuming that that's what the players are following. So that's kind of all we have to work off of. Um, I'm not going to take this as an opportunity to go into the Syracuse media policy. It's tacitly there, but um, ultimately we, our assumption is that Dino has to test positive for two straight days, which means that if he tested positive today, let's just assume that um, he has Thursday and Friday to test negative to coach Saturday. That that's where we're at. Yeah. So I guess we'll see. It's pointless to kind of speculate too much, but um, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely interested whether Dino is actually on the sidelines or not. <laughs> um, what this, um, what, what this game plan looks like against Albany. And I do think, you know, Albany was considered to be a very good team going into the spring season. They ended up going one and three. I think this year, uh, 0-2 so far in the fall. Uh, they lost to North Dakota State, which is understandable, but only by a, what, 28-6 to score, and then they barely yeah. lost to Rhode Island. Um, I don't think this is a, like, dominant Albany team that just had bad luck. Um, I wouldn't put them high on the list of potential upsets, despite what we've seen from Syracuse. However, if SU is going to coach scared and, and not necessarily focus on, on, on the task at hand, and, and I, I think that's where you could see this one get unnecessarily close um, and a little scary for Orange fans and the team. I think realistically, like, again, this is well-coached squad. This is a uh, – <laughs> Are you talking about a Villanova game? I mean, I'm not, not talking about the Villanova game. I mean, Villanova was a top 25 caliber team um, at the FCS level the year that we faced them. I, I think here – this is also, you know, three games in now to the season. I, I, I think that this Albany team is good, is well coached. I, I think the issue will be, like, fans have always hated how Dino's coached the FCS game because yep. it's always been, like, just kind of a sleepwalk through the paces. And But uh, realistically, this isn't the first game anymore. Now we're three games in. Like, we should be at a place where we don't have to show anything necessarily, but we should be able to just run past this team and move on. And, and I do hate the fact that I don't like, I, I think we're going to win. I'm, I'm fairly confident in that, but I'm not so confident that I'm just going to be like, Oh yeah, you know, 55 to six and just like walk away. No. And, and that, that to me is the most concerning uh, you know, <laughs> part of, of, of this week, at least in Syracuse football. Yeah. And I think to your point, not to derail this conversation into a future of Syracuse football, but like say Dino can't coach who's the associate head coach. Cause that was Justin Lustig as of a few months ago. And Justin Lustig is no longer there. And I think there is a very vocal point of the fan base that would say Tony white should be the head coach if Dino Babers isn't. And there's the long-term question of, you know, if Dino is not the head coach of this team, Tony White pretty much has to be. And John, you've been around this program long enough to know that this is the same situation we found ourselves in with Scott Schaefer. Not drawing comparisons. We don't know what Tony White could do as an associate head coach. We don't know 
anything that's going on. All I'm saying is that for people who are clamoring for Tony White to be the guy after Dino, because Tony White's unit is the successful unit, we did this once and it led us to hiring Dino. So it's not like this is the yellow brick road that's going to lead us to success. If anything, it's the yellow brick road that's going to lead us to the the evil wizard at the end of the tunnel where we don't actually know what we're confronting. <laughs> yeah, I think that's reasonable. And honestly, like if I had to if I had to name an associate head coach right now, since there isn't one, I unfortunately think it's uh, Sterling Gilbert. <laughs> God, no, John, stop this, stop this. <laughs> Well, yeah, because the problem is if Gilbert is the head, would be a head coach uh, in absentia, basically, um, for for Dino, then you end up with a situation where if he's the head coach, then the person calling plays is potentially Mike Lynch again. John, John, I thought this was I'm, supposed to be a safe space. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just pointing out that not that I am, like, believe me, I, I think that Tony White is the best assistant on this staff. However... Knowing Dino and knowing the the trust that he has in Gilbert, given the fact that he brought him to several spots and now this one, and the fact that Gilbert actually has head coaching experience, unlike <laughs> everybody else on the staff, <laughs> I, I I would be stunned if anyone but Gilbert was was running was calling the shots on Saturday if Dino couldn't for some reason. I'm man, you know you want, but but you know I'm right. The problem, the problem with your logic is not that it's not sound. It's that it doesn't, my brain just rejects it as fact. <laughs> um, and, and like, I think this is the, okay. We have a short period amount of time here to talk. Um, the problem that I have with all of this is something that we talked about on Slack. It's something that Steve alluded to. It's something that you alluded to. It's something that the Q&A with Albany, um, the Albany Gazette writer, uh, alluded to today. Dino refuses to change. He's bringing along his guys. He's bringing along his system. He's bringing along X, Y, and Z. And he's not making adjustments on the offensive side of the ball in a way that makes sense for a program like Syracuse. Syracuse is not Clemson. We are not Alabama. We're not even Miami. We're probably not even Pitt where we have this opportunity where we can define ourselves as having a system and the opportunity for defenses is that they have to beat that system versus, you know, something else. We, we have to be more malleable. We have to be more flexible. We have to be more aggressive and Dino Sterling Lynch, everybody who's not named Sean Lewis has to be more open to the idea of, being proactive rather than reactive and they have not shown this it makes me frustrated it makes me scared it makes me worried that even though the acc is absolute garbage this year to this point we're going to run out the same system that every acc school has seen for the last six years and the acc schools that don't have good players are going to be able to scheme around it and make us look bad when in reality we should be attacking their weaknesses instead of them attacking our system. Yeah. I think that's an accurate read on the situation. I think realistically this has been a very, like it's a proactive system when you're good enough to dictate the pace to your opponent. And when you're able to dictate the pace, you're able to dictate a lot of what happens around the game. The problem is like now we are not good enough, or at least the play calling is not good enough to, to do that. The speed isn't there. 
Um, so yeah, now we're just letting other teams kind of dictate to us what we're doing. And, and, and I think that here, like there's just this, this absence of ability to find a new idea. Like, and, and that gets to my point about Babers, you know, just kind of, you know, being in the lab at all times and, and how, how frustrating that can be as a fan and, and, and somebody writing about the team to watch is that like, it was like, oh, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess they got us. And then like, so, so let's no, just... you still have three and a half quarters yeah. to get them back. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like this is a, this is a chess match. Like there's literally like a lot of things you can do. Like. Like, like, yeah, like, like realistically, if something isn't working, try something else. Like, and the problem was again on Saturday, it wasn't that something wasn't working. Something worked. Literally, yeah. the last, the last, the last handoff was a touchdown. <laughs> John, you are a not a Los Angeles Rams fan, but you like you you yeah, tacitly I'm a support ticket holder, but 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 no, no, not a fan. You tacitly support them, and y- you're. McVeigh is the definition of doing the opposite of what is expected. And, and so I ask you as a fan, what the heck do you make of Dino Babers' decision there to punt on fourth down in the fourth quarter? Because when I was watching it at a part at a social event, I legitimately jumped up, said, fuck this guy. This game is over. I apologies for the swearing. Um but but it was this moment of just like this is in this is the antithesis of everything that we've been sold. Well, like, it, was a, it was a Schaefer move. Yes, thank you. Yes, that that it, it was it wasn't even a Gerg move because Gerg would not put himself in a position to get there. Well, it was a I mean, Schaefer Robinson move. Robinson would have punted on third down, which <laughs> <laughs> <But> he did. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, okay. That he would have done the Bills thing where he kicks the field goal on first down and and then tries to galaxy brain his way on it regardless yes it was a Schaefer move it 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 made me it didn't make me lose faith in Dino it did make me wonder to your point does he even care about winning this game yeah and and I guess that gets to the point of I know we're about to hit halftime um and by halftime I mean like two-thirds time but in any case I I do wonder like are there consequences here like 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 have we reached a point where because fundraising is going well at the moment, because there's there there's booster excitement about certain aspects of the program because they have a new building. Like, I, I guess I'm curious if there are consequences, because to me at this point, if SU can't win five games this year based on how the ACC looks, I don't think there's any reason to continue this regime. I agree. The ACC is absolute garbage. Syracuse should not the talent that they have alone on defense should put them in the bowl territory based yeah. off of what we've seen from the ACC this far. Totally is. Totally is. And and, and all you need is a competent offense. And, <laughs> and, and 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 I just think that it's incredibly damning. It, it, it was really it was the downfall of Schaefer too. Schaefer's yeah. defense has got got precipitously worse every season he was in charge Mm -hmm. and and really to me especially when the offense was so so to bad like if you can if if your if your expertise can't win the day for us or at least get close then yeah let's move on because you were were brought here for defense and then you and, and then you couldn't do that thing so now dino this is arguably the third season now that we don't have a real offense 
like it, it becomes very difficult to defend anymore. Why exactly Dino needs to be here when, <laughs> when, Scotch. when, when yeah, yeah, no, but like, no, like, like, like realistically, like, like, yeah, what, like why exactly is he here if the offense is putrid at this point? And then conceivably, you ask the next question, okay, if not he, him, who, and we're not going to get into that on this episode. Nope. Um, <laughs> And, and and then and then you also ask, okay, so if 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 we answer that who question, can they keep Tony White around <laughs> before somebody right. else leaves? And I think that <laughs> no, no. And I and I think that this is you brought the Schaefer point. Scott Schaefer had Eric Dungy as a quarterback, and Eric Dungy is the guy that everybody points to for Dino Babers not actually having offensive success. And we fired Scott, like you said, we fired Scott Shaver because his defenses got bad while he had Eric Dungy on offense to bail him out. So you can't then turn around to Dino Babers and say, well, he he had Eric Dungy, and therefore we we have to give him a chance. Like, like at the end of the day, the offenses have not improved since Sean Lewis left. And we've talked about it a bunch on the site. The bones are there. The structure is there. What we saw in the Ohio game worked and was there. The problem is that the consistency and the commitment to it is not. And listen, I understand Dino's mentality in the early season games. He doesn't like to show a lot. He likes to hide things. He likes to keep things close to the vest. Dude, at some point, you got to realize belief without evidence only works for so many years. We had some evidence that evidence has dried up and has been expunged. You need to provide us some more. And I think that, I think that's where we're at. And the, the frustrating part of it as what Steve has written, as what you've written. Um, I haven't touched on it cause I've been focusing on the defensive side of the ball, but like I probably should write about it. The evidence is there with the running game. We just have to run the ball more. It's not sexy. It's not the way that culture ball is going but it's something that Syracuse can do effectively. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I'm, I'm fine having Sean Tucker run 20 to 25 times a game. I think that's a, that's a reasonable ask. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, kid, the kid wants to do it too. So like, exactly. go on his Twitter feed. He wants to do it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, quick halftime, and then we'll talk a couple minutes about Marvel. Yeah. Um, actually, quick, we'll do halftime. We'll do a quick prediction on the Albany game, and then we'll talk Marvel for maybe five minutes. Um, Sorry to fans. I do feel like this is the FCS game. You're not really looking for in-depth analysis here. And I think we still gave plenty, uh, just not necessarily about the game at hand, because there's only so much um, you could really glean even watching the game. Syracuse is going to beat Albany. If they don't beat Albany, nobody here is going to be listening to this podcast for football stuff in a couple of weeks. (laughs) I would agree. Um, All right, Mandy. So so what have you been drinking of late? Um, I'm sure that as you're aware in California, the hazy IPA trend is just kicking on all cylinders. Um, I've had, yeah, listen, dude, I like IPAs. I like hazy IPAs. I like California IPAs in general. Hazy IPAs are like the light version of California IPAs. So I will take whatever I can get here in New York. Okay, dude. Um, so I've been, I've been drinking the sloop juice. Um, I went to uh, a bar that had the denizen creature hazy IPA. That was actually in DC. Really enjoyed my time in DC. Actually, I'm just going to talk about that. Uh, went to denizen brewery, denizen's brewery fantastic place they had a really good outdoor setup it was before washington um mls game 
Um, I had they have a creature, they have an animal, all these different types of IPAs. I mostly drank the creature hazy double IPA, gave it a four point two five on uh, Untapped. Really liked it because you got the taps and the taste of a double um, with the body and the drinkability of a hazy. So I'm just going to recommend that. Fair enough. Uh, I had a few different things, but nothing like crazy. Um, kept a pretty light weekend, to be honest. Um, had Pizza Port, uh, Share the Ride, uh, West Coast IPA, as, as well documented around here, my preferred style. Mostly just Idaho 7 hops um, there, but great flavor overall. Had, uh, for modern times, had uh, Singular Rhythms, uh, Citrone Black Tea and Lemon uh, Grisette. That was pretty good. And then I mentioned this one last week, but uh, Beachwoods Hoperbolic um, IPA, that typical West Coast style, same you usually see from Beachwood, yeah. um, Citra, Mosaic, Simcoe, Idaho 7, Yukonot uh, hops. So really, and, uh, the second you say Citra Mosaic, I'm usually on board. It's it's really solid. And I, I'm curious if you read the um, athletic piece about the lack of craft brewery, craft beer options at MLB stadiums. I know it's not a thing at uh, college football stadiums, but it does seem like as the craft beer boom kind of tails off of its insane peak, um, we're moving to a space where certain places are making the decision that it's just cheaper and more cost efficient to have Bud Light, Coors Lights, your your traditional macro beers um, or your macro craft beers where you get a couple of gooses in there or you get a couple of Sam Adams in there. Um it's definitely happening in New York more and more. The bars that used to have really good craft beers are moving to that macro model. I, I want, is the same thing happening in California or not? Uh, not really, at least around here. Like everybody's definitely like, there's so much, I mean, LA is such a big beer town. Yeah. Um, and two, like, I mean, there's so much like fake craft beer owned by AB and dev. Yeah. <laughs> that like, like you can get by, I mean, like Sam Adams owns uh, angel city out here. Um, AB and dev owns golden road. Like Sierra Nevada is huge, Stone's huge. So like, th- th- there's enough. I mean, like at baseball stadiums, like you know, Petco Park down in San Diego has you know arguably the best uh, beer selection in, in in the entire league, and and you can find you know just great craft beer everywhere around there. Uh, I mean, even when Ball- before Ballast Point w- really blew up, like Ballast Point was there all the time. You see Ale Smith, Oof, love them. Um, yeah, Ale Smith all the time down there. Um, to be honest, like I was at a. Like there was, there was plenty of craft beer at, uh, even if a lot of it was stone. Um, and there were some others too at the Dodger stadium when nice. I was at a bank rate field or whatever the hell it's called now where the white Sox play earlier this summer. Uh, they had a ton of craft beer, a, a lot of regional stuff and pretty affordable too. I was able to get like a 22 ounce can of uh, bells Oberon for like 10 bucks. Funny that you should mention that that is the pinnacle of craft beer. According to the athletic article, I was, I was just curious because as you kind of mentioned, um, big breweries are kind of buying up a lot of craft breweries, keeping the label. So it becomes very difficult to tell, at least here in New York, they've just kind of given in to like, we're just going to sell the big label stuff, which makes it, I've been going to more and more breweries and more and more smaller places just because they'll have the craft stuff versus, you know, uh, you know, going to a normal bar and being able to find a true craft beer, which is kind of disappointing. Um, but I guess that that's just the way that the capitalism world turns. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple minutes left, Andy. So, did want to ask you, yes, uh, first about Shang Chi, and then if we have time, um, the Hawkeye trailer. This is what I'm going to do. 
Um, Shang-Chi was exactly what I expected it to be, which was a fantastic origin story with a really good heartfelt um, story in it. Um, you and I kind of talked about this. I'm going to give you a spoiler warning for those listening. Um, three, two, one. Shang-Chi spoilers coming up right ahead. Uh, Matt Fraction was the first credit in the comic book uh, section of thanks for creating all this comic book content that we're borrowing. Um, (laughs) Matt Fraction did not write a Shang-Chi comic. He wrote the Iron Fist comic about the Secret Cities and the tournament of the Secret Cities. Um, I thought Shang-Chi did a really good job of establishing a franchise away from the rest of the MCU non-Infinity Stone version in a way that Marvel needs to do more of. Um, I would argue that both WandaVision, Loki, all these stories kind of revolve around the story that we know. Shang-Chi was taking us in a direction that we didn't know. And I will always appreciate it for that. Yeah, I I, I think that's an accurate take on it. Honestly, like Shang-Chi to me was just such a cool story. It's a unique story because like, and you kind of alluded to it, others have alluded to it and written about it. Like there was so little to really base it on. Um, and, and like, like, like the character doesn't have a ton of, you know, just time in, in, in modern comic book storytelling and it's past comic book storytelling was obviously problematic for various reasons. Yeah. So, so, so realistically, like more than potentially any other character, they really needed to kind of start from scratch here. And I think they did a great job, um, of, of introducing a new character, introducing a mythos around said character and, 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 and its own unique world, like, that's part of that character that doesn't seem out of place in a world that in the MCU, that's already like blowing up with all these, Oh, there's the multiverse and there's this dimension and this dimension and this realm and this thing. Like it's easy for that to be overwhelming. And most franchises would have already collapsed under the weight of it. Yep. (laughs) The fact that I think they successfully uh, introduced Talo and introduced uh, the, you know, kind of mysticism around, um, Shang-Chi as part of a larger story uh, and, and did it without feeling out of place or weird is, is, is great to me. And I think it's, it, it shows that like the, the, the increasing Marvel model of, you know, letting a director and a writing team cook with, with, with the type of style that they're comfortable with and the story they want to tell within, per, within certain parameters is, is, is the way forward. And it's the way you're going to see a lot of these stories shape out. And it's really, it's creating better, movies overall and 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 that's a testament to like you know you how the how far the superhero genre has moved because of marvel but also like just you look at how well formulated and well thought out this all was versus like the first thor movie or the first yep. Hulk movie or the first iron man movie well like, this America is a- maybe the exception but like <laughs> the single character or origin story um has definitely progressed quite a bit and, and I'm glad that they didn't fall into the same trap that they did with like a Captain Marvel here. Well, this is a great segue into Hawkeye where you're taking a really crappy superhero and you're taking the best comic book version of him. And you're basically saying, we're going to translate this comic into uh, film, whether it be, you know, long, long form film of TV show or, you know, movie film. Um, they're opting to go for the long form with Hawkeye. I, the Fraction Aja uh, uh, Hawkeye story is arguably one of the best comics I've ever I've ever read, um, and the fact that they're turning it into a Christmas Marvel movie is is both an ultimate flex of Marvel's power of we're going to make you like Hawkeye, 
Um, but the ultimate homage of this is a great story that we are going to bring to the screen because the comics already did all the heavy lifting, all the heavy storytelling. All we really have to do is hit the same notes, which is here's a broken dude who (laughs) uh, is not a hero, but is trying to so hard to be a hero. And I am ultimately really excited because again, John and I will point this out on Twitter all day, every day. That Hawkeye story is is a must read if you're a Marvel Comics fan. Period. Yeah, it's incredibly good, and you're already seeing like you know, I was mentioning to Andy the other day offline that like I was rereading it, and you already see there's like dialogue and images that even in the in the trailer directly ripped from the early uh, pages of the comic, and I think the vibe and and, and the tone and and pace of the comic is, is is such a great setting for you know episodic episodic storytelling. Yep. Um, here and, and and I'm excited to see how they progress the character. I mean, there there's a difference, you know, kind of spoiler ahead to some extent, but like where you're you're not introduced to Kate Bishop before this show, but in the comic you've already been introduced to Kate Bishop. Yeah, but Kate the- but Kate doesn't really have a fleshed out origin totally. before then. She's yeah, like the, the, this comic is the moment where you see that relationship play out, and that's what the MCU does so well. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great point that, that I think realistically, like this, this works because like you see her as somebody that has a, a potentially bright future within the MCU. This is a great vehicle to close the book probably on, on Clint's story and allow him to get that yeah. kind of, you know, walk into the sunset with his family um, while, while acknowledging and atoning for potentially his past sins and then giving the baton, you know, to Kate Bishop. And it's just obviously filling a, a, a theme in a lot of these recent movies, um, really, other than, well, even Shang-Chi, even though we, we didn't know when Wu <laughs> in advance, it, it's a lot of passing of batons yep. to two characters. Um, and really, it's been every movie since, um, you know, since after Endgame, every movie, every show, there's been a sort of passing of a baton um, to somebody like, E- e- even in uh, WandaVision, you know, I, yeah. I would say like the, the title of Scarlet Witch wasn't necessarily being passed from someone um, that we saw anyway, but it was being passed to Wanda. You know, Captain America was something being passed to Sam. Um, I, I think for, for Loki, it was a, it was not a botched handoff, but it was an intentionally um, poor handoff of, 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 you know, the who's in charge of the sacred timeline. Uh, you know, and, and obviously Black Widow, clear handoff. Uh, Shang-Chi, clear handoff. Um, uh, Far From Home was a clear hand was a clear handoff, even if not as successful or intended uh, one necessarily. So I think I think handing off is kind of the 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 theme of Phase Four um, as we look ahead to for these a uh, Phase Five, if they're even going to call it a Phase Five. <laughs> yeah, um, that. That, that introduces probably a lot of new characters um, like a fantastic four um, like maybe some of the X-Men um, expands what we know about Wakanda gets into blade and some of yeah. the you know, Marvel horror type stuff. So I, I think that while I was skeptical at first about a lot of like looking back, looking forward content in phase four, I think it's actually working well because there are some clear themes of family and, and, and it is handing off of mantles so that we can, and it feels more natural and it feels really like a comic book in a lot of ways. Yeah. We're kind of handing off <laughs> what a character is and does to just a new person. And it feels natural because it's not as easy to do, I think, 
in, in, in the sort of superhero storytelling that Marvel's created as it is um, in a comic book. And and, yeah. and and Marvel wants to avoid looking like DC, who just like I don't know, you you be Batman now. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think and um, no, and I I think that that's a really elegant way of of saying at the end of the day, um, Marvel is a continuity based storytelling device. Um, you know, if you're a Spider Man from the from the sixties, whether you like it or not, you and I will get into this at another time, maybe on another form. Um, there is a clear line between the Spider-Man in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s to the 2020 version of Spider-Man. Um, it, it, Marvel has always done this really well. It works really well for the type of storytelling that people like to see represented on film. And ultimately, what I would like to see out of Hawkeye, what I would like to see out of the posting Shang-Chi movies, Eternals, looking at you not necessarily a clear line of this is why this film matters, but a more clear direction of this is the story that we're trying to tell that we haven't told before. And Shang-Chi did a really good job of representing a culture that had been predominantly misrepresented, um, but also telling a father son story that in Marvel, the father son relationship is primarily out of neglect this was not a story out of neglect. This was a story where the two didn't see eye to eye and actually got to resolve that against each other. It would be like if Tony Stark got to fight his father over the whole, you're selling arms to a, to a, in a way that I don't agree with. Um, so that part I really enjoyed. I hope we get to see more of that. I don't know if we will. WandaVision is really the only story that kind of dove into that in phase four. Um, I'd like to see more of it we'll we'll see what happens there's a lot of projects still out in the air and there's still a lot of narrative threads that haven't been tongue on tug on yet agreed agreed well on that note my children are home so we will have to call it at that um, <laughs> andy thank you very much for hopping on uh much appreciate the uh the filling in this week i had a lot of fun and i'm telling dan this that he's going to probably need to take some time off in november december so we can talk <laughs> so we can talk marvel when football is just out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> Reasonable. <laughs> well, that was Andy. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Megaphone, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go orange. <laughs>